And so when we are in a state of play, we are actually more capable of building relationships. So we shift into a pro-social posture. Welcome to a One Life podcast. One Life, as you may or may not know, is a grassroots learning collective made up of equippers serving classes BC, Northwest, and Southeast in the Christian Reformed Church. By providing events and resources centered around the five foundational callings of the church, worship, faith formation, servant leadership, global mission, justice, and mercy. Our conversation this month is with Jennifer Burnett. Jen has ministered in Ontario, Australia, and Kelowna in a variety of contexts. She has her doctorate in, of ministry in leadership and global perspectives and is passionate about creating safe space for people to bring their authentic selves into community where they can encounter and be transformed by the living God. I had an amazing conversation with Jen. Uh, so wonderful to draw deeply from the well of her experience. Uh, the well is also the name of the church that she currently serves in Kelowna, and they do some fabulous work. So I encourage you to look up that church, and I encourage you to check out her blog at invitationalvulnerability.com. Here's my chat with Jen. I, I live with, I was living on Zoom before the pandemic, um, actually, because of my doctoral work. Oh so. yeah, totally. Um, it, because it's an international program, we we met on Zoom yeah. starting in 2018. So, which is why my church went on Zoom before everybody else. Yeah, you were ahead of the curve. <laughs> I did, and because we're a small church, I kind of did it. I did everything intentionally, and before anybody else had made any decisions. Um, so we, instead of going to like live streaming or um, recorded preaching, we we went to zoom. I shifted to a mental health focus and redesigned how we did things, um, to take into account caring for mental health throughout the pandemic. Cause my oh, husband so cool. being who he is knew how long it would take and what it would probably look like. So we had that conversation in December, 2019. Okay. Um, and so by the time we were, we actually went online, I wasn't surprised. And, had already made a bunch of decisions that were, as it turns out, radically different than a lot of other churches. Um, but it, I, we have a pretty small group, so I say this, but it doesn't mean a whole lot. We actually lost nobody during COVID. Wow, that is pretty awesome, though. That, yep, even with a small group, that is that's quite something to to say. Yeah, um, yeah, that was a a wild time. I'm glad it's over, but yeah. It's, it's messy. It's, and it's left, it's left, um, it's left fingerprints that we, we keep trying to ignore and mm -hmm. including, well, and I mean, I talk about this in my work, so I don't know whether this comes up, okay. but like, including the fact that we, it used to be that you, if you were preaching to your congregation or leading a bunch of people, you go, oh, there might be some people who have experienced trauma here. And now I just assume everybody here's experienced trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just differently because the nature of 
isolation is that your body interprets it as a, a trauma, as a low level mm-hmm. trauma. And so what we went through, everybody body interpreted as trauma. So Mm. to be trauma informed now isn't to be like, oh, those people who've been really badly abused, I need to be a little sensitive to that occasionally. This is a, I would assume everybody is um, traumatized in some way. And anyway. I I find that really helpful insight actually, because um, I've just been noticing behaviors in society have really ratcheted up after COVID. Like there was just this lower tolerance for other people and less grace and everybody was seemed to be on edge when we yes. came back out of isolation. And it was like, wow, this is, this is more toxic than it was when we went in. Um, yeah. And so trauma, a trauma lens would be helpful for looking at that. Yeah. It, yeah. Before it was like a specialty corner. And now I think that it's, um, it should be mandatory training for leaders and pastors. Yeah, good. Anyway. Good. All right. Well, we can uh, start the official section of the interview now, if you like. <laughs> no, I should just, we should just ease into it. Just keep keep on uh, uh, chatting about like we already are. That, that's the vibe. That's the vibe that I really like. Um, but for our listeners, um, I'm here with Jen Burnett. Jen is a pastor at The Well Church in Kelowna. Is it the Well Church, the Well Community Church, or just called the Well? We just mostly we call ourselves the Well, but we do specify the Well Church because there is a on-campus pub also called the Well, and um, occasionally people get us a little mixed up very briefly. <laughs> in in the interest of starting out easy and and just fun um, in the conversation, that reminds me of this brilliant moment in the Simpsons movie um, where. Uh, the the sky is falling literally like there's an asteroid hurling towards Springfield that's going to wipe out the whole town. And there's this brilliant moment where the whole town is freaking out and they zoom out over the town and you see everybody run out of the church and everybody run out of the bar into the middle, look up, and everybody who's just in the church runs into the bar and everyone who's just in the bar runs into the church. (laughs) Are you familiar with that? So I just thought that was just such a hilarious and tragic and but like good commentary where you're like wow that is so true that is what humans do isn't it but but anyway that's just to say maybe there's some overlap between the two communities that is uh helpful and maybe maybe those two communities are closer together than we think in a good way like they actually can uh provide community and support and yeah i don't know absolutely i i think that's um a fun observation. And I think there is a lot of the same things that should happen um, mm-hmm. between the two. Um, we do not actually have a relationship with the pub on campus. No, no, I, I assume not. <laughs> um, but certainly when I was in university, every in Southern Ontario at the time, every university had like a an on-campus church service in the pub once a month. There was kind of a movement of this was quite common. Um, so it, it's not unfamiliar and certainly I've been to my share of churches in name, the pub of your choice on campus. I love that. I was big, when I was 20, I was living in Edmonton and I, I participated in a number of those coffee house churches and then pub church. There was a church that was meeting at Grant McEwen in Edmonton that, uh, at the, the local university, but eventually they moved to Yellowhead Brewery on Sunday mornings. And that was where they did their worship service. And, yeah, there's something really good about that. I think these like authentic the authenticity that you get in a space like that. 
uh, is is helpful. And and it's a familiarity to some people. Like when you're trying to invite people in who have never been part of a church context, the way church buildings are laid out, the formality of them, the strange furniture that we have in the form of pews. Sometimes it, yes. it can all be difficult for someone who's never been in. Um, but a pub is familiar when you're a university student. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. My growing up in the United Church, though, we were we were pretty much teetotalers and very careful not to have things with alcohol out of respect for recovering alcoholics. Yeah. <laughs> so that that's the other extreme is how do you create safe space for um, people on that road as well and respect that journey? That's a very good point and very complex. And as some of these churches grow, they would have to be asking those questions, too. And Oh, that's so interesting. Well, not to throw another well into the mix, but my previous work was uh, a place called Jacob's Well on the downtown east side of Vancouver. So I spent a lot of time there and just bringing all these conversations together. Yeah, we had a lot of, uh, it was a homeless uh, ministry, a drop-in center on the right right in East Hastings um, Street. And um, so we had, a, we built Christian community with people of all sorts, struggling with all kinds of things. And that was really, that was a really neat, neat spot. Yeah, it highlights the tension between our need to contextualize and our call to be countercultural mm. and countercontextual and trying to walk those lines and in church planting and on those missional edges, um, we find ourselves asking a lot of those questions and sometimes having to define even who are we trying to reach um, so that we can answer that a bit more clearly for ourselves as churches and as, as ministries. Yeah, excellent, excellent point. That's so true. The, the, a- Andrew Walls, was it? I read an article by this guy named Andrew Walls who talked about the pilgrim principle and the, I don't know the other one anymore, but it was both. It was that, that kind of thing that you want to be contextually relevant and you want to be a pilgrim kind of setting a new path as well. And uh, yeah, no, that's awesome. So let's, let's start here since we're already talking about the well. Uh, tell me about some of the interesting things happening at the well where you are the pastor. Uh, what connections have you seen um, in your community to the things we're already talking about? Sure. Um, what's been interesting lately, I, I suppose, is we had um, a grant, a Resonate grant for innovation projects. And so for the last six months, we've had a community dinner once a month um, with our newly arrived Syrian friends. So we were part of sponsoring a refugee family who it took many more years than we hoped to bring them over. Um, And they finally arrived last December and just trying to create a place where they would be comfortable to come and hang out with us. Um, as well as any other friends that they had. So relatives and um, other members of the Syrian community that they'd connected with. So we we rented a space in the German club. We wanted to make sure that it had a meal involved. Food is good. Um, and because as a church plant, we don't have a building or a space that's our own. We had to rent one. And we've been eating together and playing together um, and practicing English for our Syrian friends um, together. And so the idea is we come and at first we just had the meal catered. So partly because we were a little bit nervous of trying to find halal food in respect of 
their dietary requirements um, and weren't sure that we would know how to cook that or how to navigate that. So we just ordered some that we knew it was that way and invited our friends to come and our church to come and had tables and just watched conversation happen. And the fun part is the kids took the lead, of course. There's a good courtyard in the place that we're renting. And the Syrian kids have excellent English, the ones who have been here for a couple of years, um, even better than their parents. Um, And so they are often the translators and also the ringleaders in the fun. And so they were willing to do everything. They were willing to translate for us. And so it's Um, evolved a little bit over time. And now we come together early and um, whoever's there early enough gets in the kitchen and and does the cooking in a combined way, which is a great space to serve each other. It's easy to learn new words when you're looking at an item. So, oh, this is a a pepper, (laughs) you know, and then, um, so it's easy. It's an easy place to practice English. Um, It's a natural place to co-serve alongside each other. So it's easier for our Syrian friends to hop in the kitchen and the, and take the reins as well. Um, and so the, you break down kind of any notion of hierarchy and that division between host and guest just blurs because we all become co-hosts and co-guests. Um, and then we would sit and eat together. So there's the serving, the eating. I talk about these in my research. And then we play together. So one of our favorite games to play as a big group is Pictionary. Um, you get to work on your English. You can break up into teams easily. Um, again, the kids' energy kind of drives it, but it's an adult inclusive game. And so we've learned to play and laugh together. And so that's, I would say that's our most exciting thing that we've been up to as the well. Um, the cool part is it, members of the community want to come too. So people that just from my kids' school who I've told about are Syrian friends who've arrived and they've kind of traced the journey through me running in for school pickup late because I was at appointments with our Syrian friends. They've said to me often, oh, that's really cool. Is there any way I can help them? And these aren't church people necessarily. And there's no reason you have to be a church person to offer good support to newly arrived Syrian families. And so because this is such neutral ground, they they can come to this community dinner um, and be part of it as well and contribute to it as well. They will bring things for our Syrian friends. And so it's a very safe place to build relationships across difference. Wow, that that is that's super interesting. Now you mentioned play, and I wanted to pick up on this idea because your PhD, I'm told, um, is 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 on the subject of four practices that sustain uh, an affection. So affection between people across cultures and ideological differences, and one of them is play. But that's just one of them. Um, tell us a little bit about your thesis and uh, why that subject uh, jumped out at you. Right. So this goes back a little bit to me asking the question, why are there people in my life for whom I have deep affection, um, even across ideological difference, and that affection has been sustained over decades now? Because the older I get, the longer that affection is sustained, right? You start going, why do I still have this warm feeling, like genuine love for these people? Mm. And what is common about it? And there are 
and it, it really is the people that I've played with as part of our time together. And I was actually just talking to my friend who is an associate prof um, out East in the psychology neurobiology field, who was one of my youth group when I was a youth pastor years ago. And we were reflecting on, yeah, we really still love these people and talking about how silliness and play is actually very vulnerable the older you get. And um, so this is, this is these kind of, this curiosity of why this works um, was part of what shaped my dissertation for my doctoral studies. And one of the benefits of play is that it actually activates neurogenesis and neuroplasticity. And so neurogenesis being our brain's capacity to form new ideas and neuroplasticity to rewire and be changed by it. And so when we are in a state of play, we are actually more capable of building relationships. So we shift into a pro-social posture. Um, And even if your play doesn't have to be agenda-driven, it's just that what it does to our brain is to put us in this place where we're open to new ideas and new relationships. Um, In play, we, our our brains um, learn and adapt to social cues and become socially aware. So if you're with somebody for long enough, you begin to recognize certain uh, body language, certain facial cues, and and imperceptibly, you're not probably not thinking there. Oh, they just did that, and it equals this. But especially when we're working cross culturally, you need to spend that time together to understand people's gestures and um, people's intonation, and especially if you don't speak the same language, body language becomes very important. Mm. And and so creating spaces where we play attune us to all of this. I, I love this uh, notion a lot. And when you describe play, you talked about already the kids sort of leading the way in your community. And I can definitely, when you're describing this, go right back to the playground in elementary school and all of the things I learned and how to socialize and all those kind of things and seeing how necessary that play was for development. But you're saying it's also important for adults. So I'm interested in picking up on that idea too. What does play look like for adults, um, adults across cultures or just adults in general? Well, I mean, that varies. And there is a distinction between play and playfulness, but both are beneficial. Um, Anything that involves some sort of risk-taking, and that doesn't have to be high adrenaline ropes courses, but it can be. (laughs) Of course, some of us love that stuff. Um, it, it can be as easy as humor and including humor, um, that is playful. Um, I love board games too, especially if they don't get too competitive between the children, but I like a good competitive game as well. (laughs) Creating opportunities to create. So nurturing these spaces where actually you're meant to create together, um, are, are great places for play, whether it's written creativity, whether it's drawing, whether it's textiles or molding, all of that um, can be incorporated even into worship services, but gatherings, right? Going, how can we make this more playful? Um, as As we take risks, it actually opens us to learning. 
And so creating even the risk of like getting up in front of people, like that's big. So something as simple as Pictionary, when you have to stand in front of everyone and draw, which wasn't scary when you were seven, but as an adult, you you always, I mean, how often do we apologize first? I'm sorry, I'm not very good at this, right? Like we we start with the apology of somehow there's this need to be good at everything and play you shouldn't have to be good at. That's the idea. It should be something that is non-productive. Um, and it kind of breaks off that idol of my identity is tied up with how productive I am and how competent I am. It's not supposed to be that way. It's supposed to help um, us laugh and be released from those obligations, which again, um, helps us break down the performative requirements of relationship building as adults and, and re-engage just the fun of it and the creativity. Of it. Oh, I love that so much. What you're sharing now reminds me of something you said earlier too, where you said play is vulnerable. And, um, and so I'm curious, you apparently have a blog called Invitational Vulnerability. What is Invitational Vulnerability and why is that important? That comes out of the idea of trying to be ourselves hospitable space for others. Um, so rather than just focusing on our environment for creating space for people to come in, how do you become a living encounter with God, first of all, but do that not through um, certainty and instead come with your uncertainty, come with your imperfection, come with your transparency. Uh, we are seeing more and more, and even I'm hearing it at leadership conferences, this call for authenticity and transparency. And there is a yearning to be allowed to be that when you come into a space and to bring your whole self, your whole messy, uncertain self in. And I think that on those edges of sharing our faith, more and more people are interested and open to us saying, I'm not actually sure about everything. Here's, here's what's going on in my life and, and how my faith is helping me navigate that. And, and even the, I'm broken too. I'm not a perfect person trying to invite you to live up to something. I'm an imperfect, broken person, really a bit of a mess too. And so you are allowed to be a messy person around me. And um, I, I do get asked, is there uninvitational vulnerability then? And, yeah. and I, you know, I would say, absolutely. There's ways that people use their story or are selective about what pieces of themselves they share in order to manipulate a group and to dominate it instead of nurture mutual exchange. Mm. And, that, that, sorry, keep going. Yeah, no, go ahead. Well, that that's really resonates with me. I, I was a theater major. So I know all about this uh, performative brokenness, that it becomes the competitive brokenness Olympics, and you're oversharing yes. the first time you meet other people and everyone has the most tragic, and that's not inviting, right? And so I love this picture of kind of, but then you also in the church, probably more often, we have the opposite, right, where there's sort of a, a performative perfection or or at least a, an appearance of having your life together. And so that invitation to say, hey, I'm broken too. And I found, uh, or Christ has found me. Um, and 
and I remain broken for, for now, you know, I'm, I'm on a journey of healing, but I'm not there yet. And yeah, that's a beautiful picture. Um, this, this reminds me of another question that Wilma wrote here, um, which is, uh, you've been described as someone who enjoys drawing the gold out of people. So tell, tell us a little bit about what that means to you and, uh, and, uh, why that's needed. It comes from an assumption that every person is made in the image of God. And so every person on this planet reflects uniquely the face of God in some way. But obviously in a fallen world, we also all have a whole bunch of um, stuff that goes on and mars that image. Uh, we all have experiences and even motives that take us away from that. Um, and so we end up trying to be performative or we're, we're reactive to things. And so I feel like in my life, I've done a lot of just coming alongside people and naming the places I see that reflection, that beauty, that goodness, and, and trying to find that sweet spot of going, I want to help you become the best you you can be not, not uniform, but what is on, going on in your heart? What is the unique call God has on your life? Um, and in, in more Christian context, that looks like mentoring and praying with people and, and really a journey of discipleship alongside them. Um, knowing that when that happens, people are always doing the same for me at the same time. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, because there's a mutuality that should come in it. Uh, beyond the church, I love coaching. So I listened to your podcast with Kevin and just loved it because I'm not the hockey girl, but I coach rugby at the high school level. And I just look at the potential of these young women and I am so excited by who they are, but also who they can be. And I love watching them learn how to walk in strength and to be a good teammate and to grow in resiliency and to grow, to learn they can get up again. And, um, that, that carries them better, I hope into the rest of their lives. And as they navigate sometimes really complicated relationships at that age. Oh yeah. Oh, I bet. And I, I could see a lot of parallels there between, um, coaching and, uh, and church, uh, function. Um, and church community building. Um, and speaking of church, you know, um, community building, uh, during the pandemic, you blogged about the spirit mischievously bringing people together with different perspectives. Um, I, I love this idea. Uh, what, what did you mean by uh, mischief, mischievous? Uh, that's not a common way we describe the spirit. I would love to hear what you meant by that. Um. Yeah, I think when I watch how the Holy Spirit moves and brings people together, mischief seems to be the right word, you know, that has a, a motive that is undisclosed to us often um, and puts people together. And you're like, I would not have picked this person necessarily. They are not like me. They are difficult and um, then you realize actually I'm probably the one who's difficult. Like those moments mm -hmm. of this is the mischief of the spirit going here. You're actually better when you're around these people, better things will be birthed, more creative things will be birthed and 
nurtured, if you can all be together and keep persisting in drawing near and that, that the Holy spirit draws us in and we're all, I mean, when we're desperate, we want to draw near to God and that God goes, that's funny. Cause that other desperate person who is totally opposite you is also drawing near to me, which draws you closer. And it's how we're meant to be. Um, I think so. I, I just always think that's mischievous. <laughs> like where you, it's almost like when I do things to try to get my kids to get along better, or I'm like, Oh, I will just create this scenario. I will give them some environmental cues or some incentive to come alongside each other. And I watch the spirit doing that over and over again. I mean, sometimes just be surprised at who you end up living next to in your actual real life neighbors. And I think sometimes that's the spirit's mischief too. I love that so much. I, I've, I've uh, thought about um, when I was first starting to date my, my now wife, um, she, I always had this sense that she was like conspiring, like she was conspiring, you know, touching her fingertips together behind the scenes. And that was the way I always pictured her. And I described that to her as, as you're always conspiring, but you're always conspiring for the good of the people that you love. That feels like her. And, uh, and so I love thinking about the spirit in that way. He's, he's, he's up to no good, but he's actually up to, up to very good. Um, but it almost takes on the character of like a practical joke, doesn't it? Um, but for our good, you know, what a wonderful, yeah, wonderful way to put that. I love thinking about the spirit in that way. Um, now let's talk about you growing up. Yeah. T t apparently. So this is just something Wilma told me you love Christmas pageants. Tell me about this. Well, she, I, I, she's referring to a particular blog. Um, so I grew up in a very small rural town in Southern Ontario, um, about 320 people, 19 when I left is kind of the joke. Um, and so I went to the only church in town. Um, there was none of this choosing which denomination I aligned with. If I wanted to go to a church, this was it. Um, my parents were not particularly church goers. But I asked enough spiritual questions. And as my mom would say it, I just started teaching them spiritual things. And they thought, oh, we should probably get some professional support on this. Um, so I went to this church and loved it. They created a lot of space for me. I have a lot of very positive stories about this girl who, from a fairly young age, went to church by myself. Um, and so you can imagine this random kid just coming persistently and the moment that she's talking about around this Christmas pageant was we obviously we had a Christmas pageant every year and I wasn't supposed to be able to make it for the Christmas pageant. So I didn't get assigned any lines. And then all of a sudden the schedule shifted somehow and I could go, but all the lines had already been given out. And so bless Ruth Ludit forever because she wrote me two lines so that when I could be part of this Christmas pageant. And when I showed up, I had a spot. She wrote me in. And looking back, it's both a little thing and a huge thing because it meant that I was seen. It meant that I belonged and that she would create space for me to have the same spot as other people at the table. And it profoundly impacted me 
And so I love Christmas pageants where you get to write lines specifically for kids. On a couple of occasions, I've write, written in, entire Christmas pageants specifically for the children in front of me. Um, and I'll sketch them out. And then I actually will have the kids practice it and ad lib it. So then I write in jokes that they make themselves so that it it, it aligns with their sense of humor it aligns with the wording that they would choose. It helps them connect with the character they're playing better. So, and it's very playful. Kids like joking around. And sure, there's lots that hits the editing floor of what they say. I guarantee that. Um, but this idea of creating space for kids to bring their authentic selves to the work and then make that the offering to the congregation really excites me. And um, so that's, that's where Christmas pageants, there's a number of places in my life where these, this creative work of creating theater type productions that aren't about the script and aren't about the production, but it is everything about children coming and bringing their real selves and make that, making that an offering while they engage with the stories of Jesus. Oh, I think that's amazing. I, I love the the picture that that paints and how it's such a great concrete image of everything we've been discussing, right? Because, I mean, what do you call a drama? You call it a play, right? It, it is a play and it is vulnerable to be in front of people and all these kind of things. So what an awesome calling that brings together so much of your PhD work and your pastoral ministry work into one thing. And with kids too, man, it is hard to uh, uh, get through to kids, I find. Um, I work with youth and and so those creative ways that you can really make them shine and tell them that you notice them when there's so many layers of silliness and and defense and 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 fluff to kind of uh buffer, you know, between um you and the adult or whatever. I mean, this is yeah. just that that is just an amazing way to way to bring some in, invite some of that vulnerability. That's awesome. Um so I always ask, as we near the end of the conversation, I always ask if there's anything you have on your heart for the church, like something you'd like to gift the church or um, out of this conversation, something burning on your heart you want to to pass on to our listeners. Yeah, I, I would say that the practices that I try to adopt um, are, are largely about a couple of things. One, acknowledging that people are struggling in terms of isolation and loneliness and mental health. Those are huge challenges we are facing as a society right now. And so to keep that in mind that our, our way of gathering needs to alleviate and address those pieces. Um, and so how can we design to ensure that Every time somebody shows up, they are listened to. Um, they have space to work through things and and that there is genuinely space to change your mind and be transformed um, by the Holy Spirit and by one another and to respond with compassion and relationally. And that's not so fixed. <laughs> that's that's a bit fluid and it's it's unpredictable. Like, I'll just be honest. It's very vulnerable as a leader to go. I actually don't have a planned outcome here. I'm willing to go where the spirit leads 
And like we've talked about, the spirit is mischievous. And this may be somewhere completely unexpected. And so trying to create space for that um, and trying to help people be fully present is difficult in this day and age, but it, it actually is how we help lower the anxiety in the room. And so I know nobody wants to put their phone down, but we need to figure out how to create environments that are so engaging and activate all the senses so that we can be fully present. And that will actually help us be more patient with each other and listen with more compassion. Um, I think the church needs to be a place where we model coming together across difference. And that needs to be at least part of our hallmark for these days of polarization and division. We need to model how you come together with people who are different and um, love them well not just in theory, but actually showing up for them. Yeah, I'm also hearing, and you're, this is something you've already said, but, but I love that, that embodied piece of this, like that there's something necessary about that embodied coming together that uh, we so desperately need. That, that's beautiful. Um, good. Yeah, and that's why these practices of play and eating and serving and praying together that I have, like, all of those I'm going, how do we make sure that it's embodied? Yeah, hard to do those things behind a screen. All Every single thing that you mentioned, those are all hard things to do behind a screen. So yeah, beautiful insight. Well, that's that's what I've got. Uh, those are the questions I've ha- I have. And that uh, this was an amazing conversation, very enriching. I feel very fired up by this and excited to get this out to our, our listeners. Um, there's so much uh, goodness in here for the church. This is really is a gift to the church to to think and especially after COVID, try to try to think how do we do this again, you know. And uh, so I thank you so much for your time, uh, for all your your insights here, and I uh, wish you and the well all the all the best with your ministry. Thanks so much, Eric. This was a lot of fun to talk about. Awesome. On the show today, you heard Jen Barnett, a minister at the Well Church in Kelowna, B.C. For more about Jen, you can find her on her website at www.invitationalvulnerability.com. Thanks again for our conversation, Jen. I really appreciated it. For all your other One Life needs, including events, links, and information, you can find them at crconelife.ca. And if you have any feedback at all, or want to get in touch, or if you know someone who would be a great guest for a future One Life podcast episode, please email me at podcast at crconelife.ca. Thanks for listening. To lay down all our burdens, we can lay them on the ground.